Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Richard Song Tatari. Richard is a staff photographer for the Minneapolis Star Tribune. He is in his 25th year there. He notes on his website that he enjoys covering communities within our larger society that escape the attention of the mainstream media. Hi, Richard. How's it going? I'm doing well. How about yourself? We're doing good. We're happy to talk to you today. And we start where we always start, which is what's your journalism origin story? As an undergrad, I was taking classes in all kinds of fields, ended up majoring in South South Asian studies and economics, but I was taking classes from practically every department. So I was kind of curious about a lot of things and I didn't find that I was visually oriented until my final semester where I took a couple classes in architecture and I thought that I would apply to a master's program but after a couple years working, fishing in Alaska and buying a nice camera and being able to travel in the off season, I realized that uh, I enjoyed being on my feet and walking around and exploring things versus probably sitting at a desk and thinking of big ideas. So you're of Chinese and Malaysian descent. You immigrated here at age 10. Is there anything in your family or heritage that would have lent itself to storytelling, either visually or otherwise? I just realized that uh, our family's history is one that's been on the move. So I enjoy telling stories about people where I'm on the move. So maybe I'm kind of reflecting on my own childhood by being a wandering storyteller. Was your family supportive of the photography decision? I would say they were a little bit dubious. You know, when I applied to grad school, I knew I needed to do that to get a foot in the door at newspapers and other publications. My mother wasn't sure that there would be work out there. She kept encouraging me to open film processing's Photoshop, like a (laughs) store. She thought that would be a good avenue. So how did you get to the Star Tribune? I went to graduate school at Ohio University, and it's a very practical program where you, they encourage you to take, take a lot of internships. So I would take a quarter of classes, do an internship, take a quarter of classes. So I ended up doing a, a total of five internships, each about three months. and. The last one was at the Star Tribune, and they had an opening, and I was hired in the fall. And you stuck it out now. You're in your 25th year there. Your website, personal website, is apicturepoet.com. Why do you describe yourself as a picture poet? And why do you describe yourself as a documentary photographer and storyteller as opposed to just a photographer? I'm very dedicated to truth-telling in terms of images, and... I feel like that an image should be like a poem, should be able to tell you a lot in, you know, through graphic means or emotions that are portrayed and moments in the image. And for practical practical reason, I called myself Picture Poet because most people couldn't uh, spell my name. So 
I thought it would be an easy way to have an email that people could contact me with. And, you know, and the, I thought it was a moniker that reflected my philosophy also. That's, that's a fascinating way to kind of merge practical and philosophical. That's really cool. Were there any turning point moments early in your career with photography where you realized just how far it could take you? I think early on, I worked on a documentary on a Hmong family that um, lost its, where the son lost his parents to murder-suicide, and they, he and his partner had to raise many kids together. And, you know, this kind of documentary work helped me, taught me a lot of patience and kind of empathy to spend time with photo subjects. And empathy is important when it comes to, you already mentioned truth within your photographic philosophy, but I found an article from five years ago where you talked about it in a different way. You talked about making images with heart where people feel or they can sort of get a hint of what a person's going through in the image, and that's what you want to do. Can you articulate more on that for us? Yeah, empathy allows you to kind of put yourself into your subject's shoes and, you know, then you can, you know, it'll be reflected in your images where the viewers will be able to sense some of the hardships and joys that that person has gone through. And I think that's the ultimate goal of good photography. And who who are some of the like mentors or people that have kind of assisted you along the way with this? I've had some very good mentors in the past. I had a graduate student who I went to school with, Cheryl Hatch, who is a very experienced freelancer and who entered the program at the same time. And I learned a lot about patience, layering images, uh, making images with a lot of heart from her. She was more of a, you know, teacher than even than a fellow student. And then, you know, I've had editor mentors like Mike Davis, who used to be an editor at National Geographic, who would periodically look over my portfolio and give me uh, good advice. My coworkers at the Star Tribune, there's, it's a great staff and gotten a lot of good feedback from them and the photo editors too, as well. What, what's, what's an example of, I guess, like shop talk at this point in terms of advice that someone would give you one photographer or one photog- photography editor to, to a photographer? For example, I think it's important to talk about making images that touch the reader's hearts. And, you know, when I get a feedback like that from an editor, it, it really is the holy grail. And uh, not just to make literal images of what happened on this day, but what it felt like on this day and what happened to these important people in our community. So I watched a talk that you gave to the script school and you've talked about covering the protests and the looting in Minnesota in the immediate aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, and then beyond that through to the trials of, of Derek Chauvin. Can you just recount your experience with that from a kind of a broad perspective? As you know, 
it's the George Floyd murder is one of the touchstones of of news events so far this millennium, really. You know, it's something that spawned protests not only here across the country, but also across the world regarding Black Lives Matter. And it was a very traumatic event that it, because it happened in our own backyard. And there was a lot of unrest, violence, upheaval. And it's something that I wasn't used to and I had to learn to cope with while dealing with, you know, being pepper sprayed, with seeing incidents of violence. It took more than a year to really process that afterwards before I could really calm my mind down and realize what we as a staff had gone through. Now, you recounted in the talk about how the third precinct was being down, burned down, and someone said, I guess in the phone call that you had, that they had with you, you should head over there. And your response to that, you said this during the talk, was, I'm always game, which is pretty brave under the circumstances uh, of everything that was going on. You also covered the looting of an Arby's by a group of white anarchists, and they threatened you. How do you deal with situations in which your safety may be impacted? Yeah, that Arby's, that night I headed over the 3rd Precinct, uh, I had been covering some of the unrest on the University Avenue and the St. Paul side until uh, late into the evening when I was called over to uh, the 3rd Precinct. And I have to say that the Arby's was being ransacked by a a diverse group of people, not just white. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That was, in retrospect, that was a mistake to go in there with these anarchists because obviously they're they're not there to uphold the law and I should have realized that my life might be in danger as a result. But, you know, after a long, long day, I was tired and I, my, my defenses were down and I wasn't thinking quite clearly. I was thinking that, oh, I'm just going to document what happens as I would any ordinary event. But obviously, this was not an ordinary ordinary event. So how has all of this changed you just as a person? I just realized that I have to sometimes take a step back and be a little more thoughtful about the situations I step into, that some images might not be worth making because you're you might be putting your life in danger. And if you're not here tomorrow, uh, not only your reader won't be able to see your pictures, you won't be able to appreciate your own work (laughs) and your own family. So I think sometimes you have to uh, take a step back and realize, you know, some things are out of your control and you cannot make sense of it. Can you also like adjust and say, okay, I'm gonna do this from more of a distance? Yeah, I think probably that's a good idea in a lot of instances. And sometimes you have to take a risk, but then you have to weigh the consequences. Gotcha. Possible uh, consequences. Sure. Um, so I want to go beyond that in terms of showing the range of the different types of things you shoot. And one of the things that I really enjoyed 
was on your website, a series of 10 photographs of a five-year-old boy doing what five-year-olds do. He's screaming while getting his hair cut. He's saying goodbye to his mom going to school. He's costumed and playing games. But he's not an ordinary five-year-old. When he's 10, he'll be going to a monastery to become a monk. And the intersection of his lives comes into play when you see him with a group of religious figures figures and you got like the perfect shot of him because he was yawning when he's with all these esteemed religious people what do you remember about that shoot yeah he was a very interesting kid he was a very dedicated student at the time actually an update to the story is he's actually still in minnesota he didn't end up going to india Uh. i think the monks and uh, the family decided that it was probably best for him to continue his studies close to his family. But, gotcha. but at still, the time, like at the time yeah. it was a possibility. Yeah. 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 And uh, he's still a dedicated, you know, Lama to be. Yes. Yeah, so, so just explain what the situation of all that was. You know, when he was born, there was, uh, there, a Lama, another Lama had, uh, had the vision or a sign that, you know, the reincarnate, another reincarnate Lama would be born in the United States. And so they thought that this kid might be it. They administered some tests when he was young and he passed. So he was designated as the next Lama of, of someone who would be reincarnated. And it's all very fascinating. He, he's very, you know, important figure in the, in the Tibetan community and in Minnesota, which is one of the largest Tibetan communities in the United States. This was a very interesting event that happened. I noticed a few different Buddhist photos, related photos on your website. Is that like a specialty of yours? Not necessarily. I'm just interested in uh, smaller groups that operate within our society like Buddhists and Tibetans and Native Americans. And, you know, it's important to have representation in the, in the mainstream media. Yep. One other thing that showed range was there was a picture at the St. Paul zoo of a crow stealing some of a polar bear's food. And the polar bear is in the shot with his back or their back to the crow. And you've got this giant, thing in the background him it how did this come about were you just in the zoo and you saw this or or what what happened there yeah i think at the time i was doing a series on on the seasons and i was dedicating uh, one color to each season so winter was white was an obvious choice so i decided to go to zoo and photograph the polar bear and this uh, situation came up and I thought it was kind of an amusing way of illustrating something white, something wintry, but with a bit of humor. When you do photos like that, is there, I know that when I write and when I like either phrase something right or I do a clever pun or something, you know, that that's fun, I know that I got it and I get like kind of excited about it. Is this, does the same thing happen for photographers? Oh yeah, absolutely. You kind of get a little jolt of electricity going on running through your body. You get a little excited. You feel like you've hooked a fish on the line, so to speak. And uh, <laughs> definitely a better feeling than going home thinking that 
you kind of whiffed at your, you know, at the plate. Does that happen often? You know, that's the goal most of the time to be able to have one or two images like that from a shoot, but it doesn't always happen. So revisiting your philosophy from a lighter side, I, one of the things that I thought was really cool was the pictures of joy that you have. A group of teens seeing Austin Mahone, an 18-year-old in cap and gown carrying her four-month-old as she celebrates graduation, a celebration of a gay marriage, various reunifications, both familial and otherwise. How do you get shots like that just right? I think it's, it's about time, spending time with people and, uh, you know, you're there at key moments in life, in their life, and you realize that something significant will, will probably happen, a moment that reveals the true character of the person. Okay, so what is, like, I, I, I know I have, like, a mental checklist of all the different things that I would do when I write. What is the photographer's checklist in a situation like that in terms of, like, the little things that you're doing to make sure that you're getting... Uh, a good shot? I think preparations often is the key to to good photography. You know, if you're able to read a little bit about your subject before going to the uh, person's home or event, reading up on the background of the story, being more informed so you can take uh, images that have more meaning. Obviously, you know, charge your batteries clean your lenses, never have a lens cap on your camera because that's, <laughs> we call that, photographers call that the never ready filter. You know, make sure your cards are formatted properly and they can record, actually record images, just little things and being patient, you know, and being kind to people and making them feel comfortable. Sure. Basic common sense in a lot of cases. What's an example of a project that you did that I haven't mentioned that you're particularly proud of? Actually, you know, when you contact me about doing a podcast, I was in the field. I just won a small grant from the Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting. So I, in June of this year, the Supreme Court decision came down in uh, Navajo versus Arizona that uh, Navajo Nation did not have affirmative rights to the Colorado River. So I wanted to document the hardships that people go through on the reservation, just trying to get water and the lack of access to clean water. And I did that over almost three weeks in August. And I just returned after logging almost 7,000 miles. Oh, wow. Where did you go? I went down to Navajo Nation, which is about 27,000 square miles, I believe. And it's, which spans, it's the largest reservation in the United States and spans Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico. Wow. Um, now, this wasn't your first Native American project of significance. You also done uh, others, right? You did something on the Lakota resistance? Yeah, that was a few years ago when the, the pipeline was a big uh, issue, the, the, the Dakota Access Pipeline, where thousands of people came uh, to Standing Rock to protest the building of a pipeline under the Missouri River, which is the only source of water for the 
the main source of water for the Standing Rock Reservation. And then uh, a couple of years ago, during the height of COVID, I went to the Standing Rock Reservation again to document uh, the difficulties that people were undergoing because of COVID-19. All these different examples that you've given, and you've done this now for 25 years, and I think that technology has probably changed a lot for you and impacted how you do your work. What are some of the technological developments that have impacted how you're able to get the quality of a shot that you're able to get for something like that project or the one that you were just on compared to the ones that you were doing 20-ish years ago? I think the main uh, improvement technology is probably... From- for most of my career, I've been shooting digitally. I think the quality has gone up in terms of uh, photography and low light situations. You can get really amazing quality in low light that wasn't possible 15 years ago. Probably would have to had to use flash or very slow shutter speeds. But now the quality is incredible. The files are huge. I mean, you can make huge prints without any degradation. So I think the quality has just gone up, um, but the process is is almost the same. You know, it's patience, it's being prepared, and it's being uh, in the moment. I was just talking recently in an episode, we had an editorial cartoonist on and talking about the different issues that people in that role have to deal with. Are there issues in the news photography world that you're particularly passionate about that you have to deal with regularly? I think we're we're running into some very troubling issues in terms of AI. A lot, I've seen some posts of photography that's AI generated without any warning and, you know, I think to the untrained eye, sometimes you think it's it's a real event or something that really happened or a real person. Yep. So this might become an issue, especially as AI becomes more and more sophisticated. Yeah, having uh, trying to, to establish what's real and what's fake certainly is going to be problematic. Has, I know that in the Asian American Journalists Association that worker safety is an important issue because of what's happened in this country the last three years. Besides the the situation with covering the George Floyd things, is there anything that's happened to you as a result of just your background, your being Asian American, in terms of people that you've had to deal with along the way? For the most part, no, but you know, during COVID, there were a couple of instances where I thought maybe, you know, I got some uh, negative vibes because of my Asian American background. But overall, the, you know, Minnesota has been a very hospitable community. And I'm not sure what would have happened elsewhere. I know that in California, there were a lot of instances of anti-Asian American hate. Yep. And in some in the in other parts of the country as well. But as you mentioned, Minnesota generally seems to have a rep as a very hospitable state. What's the coolest part of the job? The best part of the job is getting to know my community, uh, you know, better than most people. 
I feel like if I were an accountant, I would probably deal with similar people all the time, uh, middle class, you know, meticulous or well to do people or people who think ahead a lot and have their lives in order. But as a journalist, I meet all kinds of people from homeless people to the ultra wealthy to your average middle class person. So I, I feel like I, I've been able to learn from the whole gamut of society. Well, that's cool. And what's the hardest part of the job? I think the hardest part is, you know, sometimes you don't have the time or to do uh, justice to your to the story you're trying to illustrate, and other times the the situation is hectic and dangerous, like when you have a protest or you have a spot news situation. And you mentioned before going through everything that you went through, taking a step back and looking at now, and there are ways you might have handled certain things differently. How do you manage your mental health after you go through some of the things that you, that you saw? If I were wiser, I'd probably see a therapist. What I did was do a lot of fly fishing. And for during the time of the protests, I would at least take a day a week to go fly fishing or go to my local lake or river. And that would help me decompress quite a bit. And it, it, and it worked? Yes. It helped me process my thoughts and feelings. For gotcha. sure. How would you handle uh, something like the what, what you had to handle now? Yeah, I think I probably would engage a therapist. I think there's no shame in doing that. And I think it probably speed the process up in terms of dealing with your feelings and anxiety regarding stressors in your lives. Has uh, being a journalist impacted how you view the world? So, some of the times I've felt more cynical and dubious of human nature. But overall, I've been inspired by people in terms of the hardships they've overcome and uh, the achievements that they've accomplished because of their vision and perseverance. So overall, it's been hopeful and uh, inspiring. Cool. That, that's And you keep going along 25 years later, continuing as you have. So the podcast is called The Journalism Salute, and we have you on to salute you for your good work. And we ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work? And ideally, if you're going to give us someone that you do know, give us someone that you don't know as well. I think I'd like to give a shout out to uh, Eugene Richards, you know, one of the greats of documentary photography. He's inspired me to get close to people and make meaningful images. It's kind of it's one of the icons of photography. In terms of organizations, you know, I, I'll give a shout out to the Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting who helped me get a start on this project, uh, which I hope to continue with further grants and on my own time.
Cool. We'll definitely be looking for it. Uh, Richard Song Tatari, uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. We will be following your work uh, as you continue along with the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.